You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. the middle of a, a series on prayer called Honest to God. We're going to be in Genesis 16 today. Um, so as you find that text, let's pray together and then we'll, we'll move forward and, and unpack this beautiful text. Father, guide us now as we continue to worship by taking in and hearing from you by way of your word. Uh, Spirit of God, please move and work. Um, uh, light this time on fire. Go to the places that you need to go to. Uh, divide joint and marrow right now. Um, go to those places that we're even too scared to go to ourselves. Uh, and show yourself, reveal yourself to us. Um, use me in spite of me. I'm a man most fallible, and so I need your help desperately as I, as I proclaim your word. Um, and I pray for these things in Jesus, your beautiful name. Amen. Uh, it is probably safe to say, I don't think there would be any argument, that the most revered woman uh, over the last 2,000 years especially, obviously, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, a couple of years ago on my 25th anniversary, my wife and I had the, the joy of going to uh, Greece and Italy, and when you travel through Greece and Italy, uh, you see cath- cathedrals in her honor, you see pictures in her honor, depictions in her honor. You can't really get away from it. Uh, they were everywhere. But, but there's a woman who is a close second behind Mary, and her name may surprise some of you, but that woman is Hagar. Uh, today, just today, Hagar is revered by well over a billion people and is considered to be the mother of the Islamic faith. Uh, if you don't know who Hagar is, she actually comes in uh, early on in the story of God in Genesis chapter 16, and we'll get to that section in just a moment, but she actually shows up again, pops up again in the New Testament, but in spite of how many revere her today, Paul, who writes the book of Galatians and speaks of her in chapter 4, doesn't really speak to her in terms that are very glowing, actually pretty negative. Let me show you what I mean by by bringing a text on the screen for you. It's Galatians 4. We'll look at verses 22 to 26. Paul writes, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, those two sons you may not know, but if you do, you'll be reminded, are Isaac and Ishmael. One by a slave, that's Hagar, and the other by a free woman, that's Sarah, Abraham's wife. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. All you need to know about Mount Sinai is it's always associated with the law, for that's where Moses received the law from from God, and bears children into slavery because that's what the law does. The law doesn't set us free. The law brings slavery. This is Hagar, Paul writes. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Lot's here. 
And I, want, I don't want to get bogged down into the weeds. All I really want you to see is that Hagar, as Paul uses her here, is used as an allegory. She's an illustration for the flesh and for the law and for slavery. Not great. Not, not monikers that you would want hung on yourself for eternity written in the scriptures for everyone to see, but that's how Paul views her, at least in Galatians 4. But when we first meet Hagar in Genesis 16, she's not an allegory. She's not a sermon illustration. She's flesh and blood. She's a, a real person. And honestly, she's far easier to like than Sarah. I mean, if you really had to choose, she's not perfect, but if you had to choose, I think most of us would choose Hagar. You'll see why I say that in just a second. But secondly, God's interaction with her in Genesis 16, as we will see, has some sweet and precious moments in it. In fact, some of the things that take place in Genesis 16 between God and Hagar don't take place anywhere else in the Bible. Let me show you what I mean. Genesis 16, starting at verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. Abram, he's not yet Abraham, that's coming in chapter 17. Abram's wife, Sarai, she'll become Sarah in chapter 17 as well, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all of his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are Elroy, she said. In this place, I have actually seen the one who sees me. This is why the well is called Beer Lahairoi. It is between Kadesh and Berad. So Hagar excuse me, gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. She was a spry 76, by the way. 
So a little bit of background, just so we understand what's taking place. In Genesis 12, just a few chapters to the left, uh, God called a man named Abram, same Abram here, obviously, who's married to a, a woman called Sarai, and tells him to leave his homeland and go to a land that he would show him. So in a great act of faith, Abram and Sarai and a few others, they head out. They head out to something that God would show them as they travel. Great act of faith, but with the promise from God to them that he would make them into a great nation. But there's one problem. Abram and Sarai can't have kids. That's an issue. If you're going to be a father of a nation, having children is important, but they can't have children. Abram's only heir at the time is a, a servant who works for him, and this grieves Abram greatly. He doesn't want to leave his inheritance to his servant, but in chapter 15 of Genesis, God comes to him and says that he won't be your heir, and to quote from Psalm, excuse me, Genesis 15, verse 4, but one who comes from your own body will be your heir. Which brings us to our text, chapter 16. Only one chapter to the right, but 10 years in the future. Which means what? 120 months of ovulation? Followed by much heartache. Every month, heartache. And great disappoint disappointment. So what happens? Sarah takes matters into her own hands. But before looking at what she does, let me give you the theme of this message for it comes out of the overarching theme of chapter 16. What is chapter 16 about? It's about seeing. I say that not only because Hagar gives a name to God, Elroy, the God who sees, but because the theme of seeing, of vision, weaves its way through this whole chapter. Let me, let me show you what I mean by beginning with the wrong vision of Sarai. What's her vision? Where, as we find her here, where are her, are her eyes looking? Well, they're locked onto her womb. That's where they're looking. But as we know, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Because in her culture, as we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, her culture equated a woman's worth with her ability to have children. That was primary. God was for you, obviously, if you could have kids, but he's against you if you can't. It brought validation. It brought identity. But if you couldn't, God's not blessing you for a reason. You're probably cursed. You're probably being punished. So you can kind of understand, can't you? the place that she's at. But adding fuel to this fire for Sarai was the very fact that Abram had been promised many children. Many children. But after 10 years, nothing. But that's where things even get more difficult because nowhere had God said specifically that the promised child was going to come through Sarai. He, he didn't say that. Look again at chapter 15, verse 4. If you have your Bibles, just again, hang a left. Now the word of the Lord came to Abram. This one will not be your heir. Instead, the one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And now we're 10 years in. 
I, I know I said earlier that it's tough to like Sarai in this text, but at least at this point, you have to have some sympathy for her, don't you? Ten years of this. Ten years of wondering if she's the problem. Ten, year, ten years of wondering if she was cursed. Ten years. So what does she do? Well, after 120 months of disappointment, Sarai gives in to the one recourse a woman in her position had at the time, a, a kind of adoption. A, a barren woman with servants could take one of the servants and give that servant to her husband as a lower level wife. And then the children born to that surrogate could be adopted by the head wife. Surrogates are used today, obviously not in the same way as this, but this was socially acceptable at the time. Leah and Rachel, later on in the book of Genesis, adopt sons this way as well. So what does Sarah do? Look at verse 2. She says to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Go to Hagar. Perhaps through her I can build a family. Perhaps through her, I can build a family, can literally be translated, perhaps through her, I can be built up. And I think there's more going on here than just having kids. I think her whole identity and sense of worth is wrapped up in this. So Abram and Hagar have their conjugal visit but once Hagar becomes pregnant, we read in verse 4 that when she saw that she was pregnant, Sarai became contemptible to her. Literally, that word contemptible means light worth. Sarai became of light worth in Hagar's eyes. I mean, Hagar now has everything that her society says validates a woman. Everything Sarai's wanted. And not only that, Midtown, not only that, who is she carrying as far as everyone else concerned thought it? The son of promise. She's carrying the son of promise. I, I want us to slow down and think about this a little bit. Let's dig deep. Let's, let's think a little deeper. You couldn't have, at this point in Genesis 16, two different women. You couldn't. Sarai, I got in trouble when I said this in the first. I want to be careful I don't say the same thing because I said, Sarai is old. She's 76. And I was like, ah. <laughs> 20 people got up and walked out. Sarai is older. Right? She's older. She's, she's rich. She's free. She's an insider of the covenant. The covenant came to her and her husband back in chapter 15. And she's barren. What about Hagar? She's young. She's poor. She's a slave. And she's an outsider of the covenant, but she is fertile. You, you couldn't get two different 
women, but even though they're different, total opposites, their eyes are focused on exactly the same thing. They both see their worth in their womb. Hagar got pregnant. She flaunted it. She flaunted it. She felt superior. She felt weightier than Sarai. But Sarai had her eyes on the same things. And what follows isn't pretty. She freaks out. Look at verse 5. She said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. This is great. This is, this is wonderful. We've all maybe been here. You are responsible for it. I've got to be very, very careful. I've got to be very, very careful. <laughs> yeah, well... Somebody's driving home by themselves. You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And when you saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. And what did Abraham, or Abram at this point, the father of faith, like the father of faith, strong Abram, what did he do? He wusses out. Look at verse six. That's what he did, does. Here, your slave, not my wife, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. That phrase, do whatever you want with her, can be translated, do to her as your eyes see fit. You see this theme? We, we aren't told all the details, but Sarah's treatment of Hagar is so harsh and Abram's unwillingness to intercede so cruel that it forces a pregnant woman to flee to the desert. And who's in her as far as they're concerned? The son of promise. And they let her go. And the child in her to go with her, obviously, but their eyes were so far off the mark that they allow it to happen. Um, for all you sort of Bible nerds, and I hope you are Bible nerds, there's nothing wrong with that, but if you aren't, but if you are, I should say, there's, there's something that comes up in here that I think is really important from a 30,000 foot view. In my prep this week, I discovered that the language used here ironically foreshadows the Exodus. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, the Hebrew word anah, mistreatment, um, in the Hebrew is used of Sarah's treatment of Hagar in Genesis 16 here, but it also is used in Exodus chapter 1 of the Egyptian treatment of Sarah's children to come. Ironic. But there's more. When both are told, or excuse me, when in their affliction they cry out, they're both told that the Lord has heard your cry. Both of them. And both flee to the wilderness. It's ironic. In, in fact, to add a little more to this, do you know who bought Joseph from his brothers and took him to Egypt? Ishmaelites. The ones who followed the patriarch Ishmael. What comes around goes around. 
That's a side portion of this. That's for all you guys who like going a little bit deeper. Speaking of fleeing, said that Hagar flees. Hagar flees over 100 miles away from Abraham's camp in Hebron to the region of Shur. What do you, what do you need to know about that region of Shur? Horrible. Arid, arid, parched, empty, the backyard of Egypt. Northern Africa, few places on the planet are as bleak as this part of the world even today. Tough to flourish as a human being in, in sure. Sure means the wall, the wall, no one passes. That's sure. And certainly not a pregnant woman, alone and forsaken, no one calling her, excuse me, caring for her, right? No one seeing her. Right? Dark, lonely, anguishing, mentally, physically, spiritually. That's Hagar in verse 6. That's who she is. But something divinely happens in verse 7. Take a look at it one more time. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, Where have you come from? And where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Couple of things to note here. First of all, this is not a mere angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. This is something called a theophanies or a Christophanies. Theos, theos in the Greek. Uh, Phene in the Greek. Uh, Theos means God, obviously. Phene or Phenis in the Greek means appearing. So we have a God appearance. We have a Theophanes. Sometimes angels are sent by God. Angel just simply means messenger, but sometimes God brings the message himself. I I prefer Christophanes to Theophanes because I believe this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus did say, before Abraham was born, I am. He also said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. And what I think is happening here midtown is Hagar is getting a taste of the ministry of Jesus to come. It's so sweet. We we also know that this isn't any run-of-the-mill angel, if there is such a thing, because the angel says in verse 10 to Hagar, I will greatly multiply your offspring, something that he says to Abram, back in chapter 15, and later, most importantly, when Hagar gives him the name Elroy, the God who sees, he doesn't object, which an angel certainly would have. But it's also here where a change begins to take place, and Sarai's vision and Hagar's vision too is replaced with God's vision, and it begins with this conversation between the Lord and Sarai. First, notice this, it's so good. The Lord addresses her by name. Why does that stand out? Well, commentators say that this is the only place in all of the Bible, but not only in all of the Bible, in all Near Eastern literature where a deity addresses a woman by name here. The only place. Not Eve, not Sarah, not Deborah, here. The Lord says to Hagar, Hagar, 
But not only does the Lord speak her name, he engages her in conversation. Did you see the questions that were posed? Hagar, where have you come from? And where are you going? There's a ton of weight attached to these two questions. The Lord knows where she's come from and where she's going. But Hagar, why? Why? We'll come back to those questions when we wrap up. Because I think there's, those are questions that the Lord may be posing to some of us today. Where have you come from and where are you going? Just think about what's going on here. I, I want you to see, this is one of the most precious exchanges in all of the Bible. Right here. So let's make sure we appreciate this. This Egyptian, Egyptian slave girl is getting the exact same kind of one-on-one -on -one attention that Abraham received a chapter before. Think about that. Could it really be that the God who just made his covenant with Abram in Genesis 15 to form one special nation with him also cares about this servant girl from Egypt of all places? Does God care like that? D does he really see things like that? I mean, he's got a lot on his plate, right? A lot going on. One little girl in the desert? Really? Well, the answer beautifully is yes. And he calls her by name. It's, it's so great. And promises her a son. And promises her son much of the same promises given to Abram. Both sons will be so great their children won't be able to be counted. It is telling, is telling, isn't it, that today the two biggest religions in the world are Christianity and Islam. Wonder where that began. And just as Abraham's offspring is promised suffering, back in chapter 15, verse 13, he, God tells him that they will go into slavery for 400 years, Hagar's offspring will suffer too. How's Hagar doing at this point? She is stunned. She's absolutely stunned, but stunned, and this is what is so important for us to see as we make a turn for home in this message. She is stunned not because of what God had promised her. She's stunned because God noticed her in the first place. He saw her. That's what blows her mind more than anything else. There's one historian that puts it this way. You can read this behind me. The gods Hagar grew up with, the gods of Egypt, would never notice a slave girl. In order to get Egyptian gods to notice you, you had to be high up on the priest's ladder. You had to coax and feed and flatter and for forfeit. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible sees and he stoops down. 
I'm not a Hebrew scholar, not even close. But I can read. And what I discovered this week is that the Hebrew in verse 13 is really obscure and it's really difficult to know how it's best translated. Should it be translated into the form of a question or not? In the Bible that I'm using, the CSB, it reads like a question. In this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? But it could be read as the NIV translated, I ha- translates it, I, I have now seen the one who sees me. But it doesn't really matter. For, for what is most mind-blowing to Hagar isn't that she's going to have a child who's going to be made into a great nation, but that God sees her in the, in the first place. And I point this out and I repeat it because it's, It's in this overwhelmed state of Hagar that she reacts like nobody else reacts in the entire Bible, just here. She becomes the only human in the Bible, male or female, who gives a name to God. Do you see how sweet this is? The the only female called by name is the only person to give God a name, Elroy, the God who sees. And it's at this point where you may begin to see yourself why I'm choosing to use this text in a series on prayer, because we're in a prayer series. And the reason I am in this series is because not only is it important to know how to pray, but as important is knowing who we pray to. And we pray to a God who sees, a God who stoops down, a a God who has, yes, relationship with big patriarchs, but also girls by themselves in a desert who've been forsaken. That's our God. And and this is important to know, especially when we find ourselves in Hagar times, right? Lonely times, forsaken times, burdened times, desert times. I I took you here because I I want you to know that we pray to a God who sees us as he saw Hagar, and and believe me, he saw it all. Every blow Sarai inflicted. Every blind eye Abram turned. Every injustice Hagar suffered. The God of the universe and the God of Abram saw it all. And and in a world like ours today, especially where people can can, can be written off or overlooked, or treated as a number, or a, or a diagnosis, or a consumer, or a labor, a label, excuse me, or a means to an end, to be noticed like this by the God of the universe, no less, is precious. And it's altogether important. In fact, it's one of our greatest needs as, as humans to, to know that we are known, especially when it's dark and lonely and, and barren. Midtown, God's eye is on every sparrow that falls. And are you not of much more value than they? 
Some of you have fallen this week, I bet. He sees you. He sees you. And he cares for you. And he invites you to cast your anxiety on him because he does. He doesn't despise our weaknesses or our doubts and timidity. He sympathizes with him, with them. He, he, he never forgets that we're made of dust, even though we sometimes forget we are. So that's why I take you here in this prayer series. So where are we? Well, we began with the wrong vision of Sarai, Hagar shared it, which was met by God's vision in this exchange with Hagar, which transforms finally into Hagar's new vision. Hagar is told to go back by the Lord. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Thank you. I mean, how can she? Sarah's a jerk, man. I know that may sound sacrilegious. Sarah is a jerk, at least was to Hagar. So how can she? And, and she's gone 100 miles. I mean, she's now back in Egypt. That's her home, homeland. She's going back to her people that will accept her. But the Lord says, go back. So how does she? How? I mean, she does how? Only one way. By knowing that God sees her. That's the answer. And knowing that God sees her, her vision has been changed. She's not just a womb anymore. And her worth is not found in one upping her mistress anymore. She, she's a woman who has been seen by God, heard by God, found by God, protected by God, given a drink by God, her son named by God, and both she and her son are given a great promise by God. That's how. And as she keeps her eyes on Elroy and his grace, she knows he will keep his eyes on her. And everything changes. And the place of the wall becomes the place of the well. Wells are a big deal in the Bible. Most often in the Bible, good things happen at wells, unless you're Jeremiah. He didn't have a good well experience, but pretty much everybody else, especially if you're a woman. Women all over the place in the Bible find their beloved at a well. It's crazy, over and over again. Rachel meets Jacob at a well. Re Rebecca is proposed to at a well. If you're dating someone and he takes you to a well today, either get excited or get freaked out. Zipporah meets Moses at a well and, and Midtown, Hagar too. <laughs> meets her beloved at a well. There's another outcast woman. 
like Hagar, who had no real husband, cast out, ostracized, because she had had five husbands and was living with a sixth guy. So ostracized, she would go to the well outside of her village in the noonday sun because everybody else went first thing in the morning. She couldn't handle the shame. And one day she's at at a well in Samaria and she meets Jesus who saw her. And he told her how he could give her water, but more than simply water, living water. And do you know what she did? She returned like Hagar to the very people who had shut her out, who wanted nothing to do with her. And she says, listen to what she says, come and see. Come and see a man who knew everything about me. He saw me. He talked to me. He offered me a drink that can never be quenched. Could this be the Christ? Yes. And on that day, she met her beloved. Two outsider women came face to face with a true husband's eyes, a bridegroom, the bridegroom, who like Hagar's son Ishmael, would be cast outside his father's house. And on the cross, with everyone's hand against him, became unseen by the father. so that one day to those who come to him will be seen forevermore by the Father. Longing for that day when we get to cast our eyes in the eyes of him, Jesus himself. Oh, the Bible is so good, man. Oh, the Bible is so good. Ah. I'll close with the following. I know I need to close. St. Thomas Aquinas um, is recognized and considered by most people as one of the top three theologians over the last 2,000, most important theologians over the last 2,000 years. He wrote 80 books thereabouts, all of them very massive. His his beginner's theology is 3,500 pages long. That's the things you can get done without... Social media, I guess. When, when Thomas, and most of these dudes, they died at like 48. It's crazy. Like, you did what? If you ever think you've accomplished anything, go back and read these guys and go, wow. When Thomas was writing his masterpiece in the prime of his life, he had a, a vision of God who, as he put it, was seeing him. Afterwards, he said to his stenographer, after what I have seen, all that I have written is straw. Or to borrow from Paul, it's like dung. 
Thomas wasn't saying that what he did and what he accomplished had no value, but that the very thing that could build him up didn't have the same power after seeing the one who sees him. Hmm. If we are to be free of the chains that our culture says makes us or breaks us, what our culture says will build us up, the chains of our works, the chains of our looks, the chains of our smarts or reputation or the success of our children, if we don't break those chains, then we're nothing more than Sarah was at the beginning of this text. And Hagar was at the beginning of of this text. So what's the solution? They have to become like straw when compared to him. And the only way they can become straw is by turning our eyes from the blessing to the blesser and see him most of all. Jesus said the following in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? And so as we go into a time of response, I've only got a couple of questions. What are you looking at? To to, to borrow from Genesis 16, what's your womb? What are you looking at that you're hoping builds you up apart from Jesus? Where are you most focused? Oh, hi, sweetie. Nice to see you. I'm glad that wasn't somebody 6'8 coming to me with a sledgehammer. Going. Like, I can take her most days, I think. Is it possible that there are societal pressures, familial pressures even, that you are giving into that are taking your eyes off what is best, off he who is best? Is it possible? And last, to borrow from the Lord in Genesis 16, and I don't know who this question is for, but where have you come from and where are you going? And what possibly do you need to return to with a new vision? Let me pray. Elroy. We we thank you for seeing us. But not only seeing us, but in Christ coming to us, stooping down with a gentle and and lowly heart for, for being a God who not only sees but sympathizes with our weaknesses. Thank you. And thank you for allowing us to live with the assured hope that one day we will see you face to face, looking right into the eyes of our Lord. Thank you. We worship you and we thank you. I I also pray for us. This text, we all have Hagar moments. 
We all have eyes that look to different things. We, we all find ourselves in places of despondency and, and heartache. We, we confess that we do look to other things to give us a name, to build us up, to give us an identity outside of you. Forgive us for that. Give us a new vision today. Stir in us, stir our affections and our love for you so that other things become strangely dim like straw and dung. Not that they're not valuable, not, to, not un, unwarranted to, to do, do these things, to give ourselves to them, but not that they become primary. But that our eyes would be focused on you primarily. I pray also for the Individual individuals in this room who don't know you, haven't come to you, I pray that today they would say yes to you, cry out to you, in the knowledge that you do see them and care for them, and in Christ died for them, became unseen so they could be seen. Ah, oh, we love you. Please do a ministry and a work today, I pray, in this time of response. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.